All right, so open your Bibles, if you would, to Colossians chapter 3. Do you remember the question, who are you? Who are you? As a Christian, everything that you are is determined by your unity with Christ. When you become a Christian, you are united with Christ. And all that he has accomplished, all that he has accomplished by his obedience and his faithfulness, all that he has earned by his perfect life and his substitutionary death on the behalf of sinners, all that Christ inherits becomes ours because we are united with him, inseparably and eternally united with Christ. So every position that you have before God is determined by the fact that you are united to Christ. Anything that you can claim on the declaration of not guilty when you stand before God is determined because you are united to the Christ who has paid your debt. Any claim that you can have to have been adopted into the family of God comes because you have been united to Christ who becomes then your older brother in the family of God. United with Christ. Well, this week we look at Colossians chapter 3 and chapter 4 where the point is that who you are determines then what you do. Doesn't that make sense? Who you are determines then what you do. I think it was Billy Graham, and I haven't confirmed, it may have been Dwight Moody, who says that going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in your garage makes you a car. Right? Maybe the better parallel would be sleeping in church doesn't make you a Christian any more than sleeping in your garage makes you a car. Who you are determines what you do. Did you realize when we, when we read the scripture reading today, the very last bit that we read says this, this is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God, nor is anyone who does not love his brother. What John is not saying there in those verses is that in order to become a Christian, in order to become a child of God, you have to love your brother. What he is saying is, if you are a child of God, you will love your brother. Who you are determines what you do. It's not necessarily what you do that determines who you are. Does it make sense? You want to flip it over on the other side. Why are we sinners? Why are we sinners? Are we sinners because we sin? Is it the fact that I have sinned that makes me a sinner? Or is it the other way around? Do I sin because I am a sinner? Is it because my heart is fallen and doesn't desire God because of who I am? That determines then the desires of for a Christian, what you do, how you live, isn't what gains your standing before God. God does not welcome you before him because you've been so good. Your standing before God is gained by who you are. That you have been united with Christ. That you are a new creation in Christ. Does that make sense? It's a very important truth to, to learn in order to not grow despondent in the Christian life. 
So we have basically here in chapter 3 and 4, we have four verses that's going to be my first point, which is our position in Christ, right? And then everything else is the practice of a Christian in Christ. All right, so we're just going to, to read through all of these verses. Read with me Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. Paul says, If then you have been raised up with Christ, which is true if you're united with Christ, all that he has accomplished becomes ours. Remember that? His life, his death, his resurrection, all of that then becomes ours as we are united with him. So if you have been united with him, and if you have been raised up with him, meaning death is defeated for you in Christ, therefore keep seeking the things above. Continual action. Keep seeking the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, your translation may, may say, be intent on the things above. The idea here is being intentional about the spiritual things. Intentional about what is, for you, a reality in Christ. Be intentional. Don't let your spiritual life be haphazard and accidental. Be intentional about the things of God, not on the things that are on earth. Verse 3, for you have died if you are in Christ right because his death becomes yours his sacrificial death becomes yours his defeat of death also becomes yours and part of becoming a Christian is dying to yourself here he says you have died right sort of in the past this is something that happened in the past but what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15 he says I die daily so in many ways, our dying to self is something which has happened in the past, but it's also something which is ongoing and we experience daily as we pursue Christ. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. What you do is determined by who you are. And if your life, as he says there in verse 3, is hidden with Christ in God, if who you are is hidden in Christ with God, then let that be what determines what you do. How can you find your identity in Christ, in God, and yet be content to live a life which is utterly foreign to that? Do not hear me say that that means in, as Christians we don't sin. Of course we do. Christians, of course we do. The difference is that those who are not Christians, they live in their sin. For those of us who are Christians and our life is hidden in Christ and God, though we sin, we are not content to live in it. We desire to be rescued from it. We desire for that part of our life to be killed and put away with us. Verse 4, when Christ... Who is our life is revealed. Then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Christian, that is you. That is you.
for me at this point in my life, believe me, I understand. I understand what it is to try and order my life in this world. I understand what it is to try and find my identity by what I do. I'm about to move to Oklahoma because of what I do as a living. But that doesn't determine my standing before God. God's not going to welcome me back and say, well done, my good and faithful librarian. My life is hidden in Christ. He is my life. And when I stand before him, the only thing that I will point to will be Christ. Will be Christ. So if that is true of us as Christians, if it is true of us that we are united with Christ and everything that we have and do as a Christian flows from that, Verse 5, therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, to impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which all amount to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Verse 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, Evil desires, those things you know, those things all kind of snowball, don't they? I mean, it's evil desire that leads to greed, and greed is what leads to idolatry. Or maybe it's the other way around. Maybe it's idolatry is what leads to all the rest of them, because we're pursuing something more than we're pursuing Christ. But this idea of wanting to have more, James chapter 4, it's idolatry. Those are things which flow from a life which is not rooted in Christ. And it's on account of those things that the wrath of God will come. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. So the idea here now is now that's past. You used to live in these things, but now as a Christian... Even though you may struggle with them, you don't live in them because your life is in Christ. So verse 8, But now you also put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, which is moral evil, slander, abusive speech, put all these things aside. Don't lie to one another. Since you have laid aside your old self with its evil practices and put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Because you're rooted in Christ. Your life is in Christ. He is your life. How then can we be content to continue saying, I, my life is hidden in Christ and yet be content to live as if that's not true? It can't happen. new self being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. You want to know what you one day will be? You want to know what God is making you into? Look to and understand Christ. Look to and understand Christ. Paul tells the Thessalonians that God's will for you in everything is your sanctification. What in the world does that mean? What does that look like? Look to Christ and you'll understand what he's doing in you. Verse 12, And so, as those who have been chosen of God, 
holy and beloved, instead of all that other stuff, put on the things which are of Christ. Put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. But beyond all of these things, put on love. Why? Because these are the things which are of Christ, to whom you are united, where your life is hidden. There's a, one of my favorite short stories that I had to read as a, um, I guess it was in high school. It was The Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Have you ever read The Secret Life of Walter Mitty? It's a very short story, and it's kind of a fun story, and the author at the moment escapes me. Um, but the idea is you have these, these two, um, this married couple, and they're driving into town. He's taking his wife to go get her hair done, right? And um, on the way, he has all of these daydreams. He begins to imagine all of these things about himself. And he imagines, he'll see something which, which starts this sort of imaginary um, vision of, of what is true about himself. So he's driving along, and all of a sudden, he pictures himself as a fighter pilot in World War II. And, and that story goes on for a little bit, and then something will shake him out of it, then then he sees someone else, you know, uh, dressed like a doctor. Then he begins to see himself as this world-famous surgeon. He has all of these, these realities to himself when actually what all he's doing is taking his wife to get her hair done. I think some of us live as Walter Mitty Christians. We try to imagine all of these grand things about ourselves not true. It's so easy to convince ourselves that we are something that we are not. Don't be a Walter Mitty Christian. If what is true about you is so much greater than anything that you could ever imagine, why try to substitute that with something more mundane? If what is true about you is that your life is hidden with Christ and God, that in Jesus is your life. How much more could you want? If that's what's true about you, why try to submit that? Why, why try to, to be something else to find your identity in, in what you do for a living or to find your identity in how much money you make or what car you drive? Or... It's so easy to fall into, isn't it? It's so easy. So as Christians, it's kind of the opposite of the secret life of Walter Mitty. You know, the secret life of Paul Roberts sounds kind of sordid, but the truth is that my life is hidden in Christ and God, and there is nothing, nothing more grand than that. Even the exciting life of a library. There's nothing more grand than that. The same is true for you. Be content in Christ. Be content to rest in Him. Which raises the question, is Jesus enough for you? Is He? Is Jesus enough for you? If He is all you had, would He be enough? Then we come to verse 15, which I mentioned earlier, and he says, And let the peace of Christ 
rule in your hearts. Remember what Romans chapter 5 says about peace, that we have peace with God because we are justified by faith. We now have peace with God. We're no longer enemies of God because of what Christ has done. We are united with him, and there is peace in him. Paul here says, let that peace rule in your hearts. This word for rule is what scholars call a hapax legomena, a big fancy word which just means that this is the only time in all of the New Testament where this word for rule occurs. It happens elsewhere in other literature outside the New Testament. And when it is used, it's used of like an umpire to rule whether something is, is a ball or a strike or inbounds or out-of-bounds or a two-pointer or a three-pointer or a foul or what. So I think there's a very real sense here in which Paul is telling the Colossians, let the peace of God, let that peace which comes from being in Christ, in many ways call the balls and strikes in your life. Now, I realize we have the word of God which governs our life. We have the Holy Spirit who orders our life and directs us and brings back to mind the things that Christ has said. But those things don't address everything in life. I, I searched the scriptures to see if it said anything about whether I should move to Shawnee, Oklahoma. The word Shawnee never occurs in the Greek New Testament. And so there are many ways, many senses in which a decision comes down to whether you have peace about it or not. And Paul tells the Colossians to let the peace of God rule in your life. Let it rule in your life. Don't be compelled to do something that you do not have peace about insofar as the scriptures speak to it. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I hidden my heart that I might not sin against thee. Taking the word of God and, and saturating your life with it. Letting it dwell in you richly is something which flows from a life which is hidden in Christ. I remember when I was a college student and I thought this was really a corny illustration at the time, but I'll take it and stay with me. I first started to uh, to court this young lady named Rebecca. And uh, we were living in different cities. And the man who was discipling me at the time was challenging me on my time in the Word and, and how much I'm letting the Word of God saturate my life. He said, now what if, what if this Rebecca girl had, had sent you letters? Letters telling you about her and even maybe even telling you when she would come to see you. Would you be content to let them just rest on the shelf? Wouldn't you read them? Wouldn't you want to know more of her? Wouldn't you want to know when she's coming? You know, at the time, I, you, know, you can only press that illustration so far. I realize that. Um, but that's what we have in the Word of God. And much greater than how can we claim 
for our life to be in Christ? How can we claim that Christ is our life and not be willing to, to dwell in the Word and to let it dwell in us? These are the words of Christ, the words of God. The one for whom, by whom, and through whom all things were made. Who is now your elder brother in the family of God. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, and singing with thankfulness in our hearts to God. You realize that's what we do when we gather together? It's not just something that, that we individually are doing to offer to God. If that was the case, you could just sit at home and watch something on TV and sing along. What we're doing, yes, we are singing to God. That's what he says right there, right? Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God, the end of verse 16. But he also says earlier in that verse, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. What we do when we gather together to sing is we sing to one another, encouraging each other in Christ. And that becomes then what it looks like for us to sing together to God. It's not an individual experience. It's a very corporate thing. And what Paul does here going forward is very much like what he says to the Ephesian church. Remember I showed you a couple weeks ago how the book of Ephesians and the book of Colossians are very similar, and they hit a lot of the same themes. The book of Ephesians, though, is much more general. The book of Colossians is very particular and specific. But in this passage, it's about to come. It's almost verbatim, it seems like. It's almost exactly the same thing, what he says in Ephesians. And he makes the same point, where he says there, to sing to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs making melody in your heart to God. One of my pet peeves when I go to visit a church is when the music is so loud that I can't hear other people sing, much less myself sing. Not that I like hearing myself sing. Um, but I know the reason they do that is because the people feel more free to sing when they can't hear themselves. <laughs> um, but I think in some ways that kind of defeats the purpose of our singing. It is to my spiritual benefit when I hear Russell sing. It is to my spiritual benefit when I hear Carolyn sing. That shepherds my heart to Christ. It's even to my benefit when I hear Ken sing. And that's saying something. And it's not just singing anything. It's singing praises to God, rejoicing in Christ. That shepherds my heart to Christ when I hear you singing about what Christ has done in your life. It shepherds my heart to Christ to hear you singing about the glories of your Savior. And hopefully it shepherds your heart to Christ when you hear me sing, or the person behind you, or to your left, or to your right. I know it's hard to hear the person in front of you. So sing. With abandon, just just sing. Rejoice. Sing. Don't worry about what you sound like. Just sing. Because that's to my benefit. It is God's design that Evelyn be more Christ-like because of your singing.
singing. It says it teaches and admonishes us. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Thankfulness for what? How beautiful your voice is? Thankful that your life is hidden in Christ. That Jesus is your life. That's why that song, Jesus is all I have, is such a moving thing for me. And whatever you do, in verse 17, in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Why? Because he is your life. If you are united with him, and what you do is determined by who you are, then what you do should be in the name of Christ. We should at least desire that for ourselves. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, what you say and what you do, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. And then it seems like he just goes off on a complete tangent. He goes from that saying, wives, submit to your husbands. Where in the world did that come from? But what he's doing now is he's beginning to show how our relationships are ordered by our life in Christ. One of the things that he says in Ephesians, in this same passage, is that we are to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Christians are to submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Right? Read Philippians 2, 1 through 4-ish. Read Romans 15. There's all these passages that talk about how we are to consider others as more important than ourselves, right? We are to, to submit our well-being to the spiritual well-being of those around us. Isn't that what Christ did? For us? So he gets very practical here. He says, what does that look like? What does it look like if we are to submit to one another? If every relationship that you have Every relationship that you have has a proper response of submission on your part. What does that look like? It doesn't mean we all submit in the same way. What submission looks like is determined by the relationship. There is a very real sense in that how I as an elder am to submit myself to you and what is best and spiritually healthy for you. And yet there's a sense in which the church is to submit to its leadership. There's a sense in which, yes, I as a husband submit to my wife. It's true. There's a sense in which she submits to me. It looks differently. Every relationship that you have as a Christian has a proper response of submission. What that submission looks like is determined by the relationship. And so that's what Paul says, uh, begins to say here, verse 18. Wives, be subject to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. He goes into a little bit more um, detail in Ephesians. Um, how wives are to, to submit to their husbands. And that's kind of the verse that gets all the, all the press anymore, doesn't it? It's a very unpopular verse. A very unpopular verse. Anytime that you see um, you know, Christian or beliefs ridiculed in the press, this verse is going to be there. It's as if that's all Paul said. And notice, by the way, he doesn't say women submit to men. 
He says, wives, submit to your own husbands in the Lord. Insofar as your husband is submitting his very well-being to Christ and leading you in godly things, he says, wives, follow. But then verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. Let me read to you how he says it in Ephesians. If you want to look there, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. I like the way he orders it in Ephesians where he talks about how to walk, how to, to live your life as a Christian and Chapter 5, he says you're to walk in love. He says you're to walk in light. He says you're to walk in wisdom. Right? Chapter 5, verses 1 through 5 is about walking in love. Um, 8 through 14, walking in light. And he says in verse 15, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. And then he talks in verse uh, 18 about control, or being filled with the Holy Spirit, yielding control of ourselves to God. Verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs is a wise thing to do. Verse 21, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And then he says, verse 22, wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. Exactly what he says in Colossians. Exactly what he says in Colossians. And that's only, I don't know what it is in Greek, but in my translation here, it's, what, 10, 12 words? One verse? Look at how much he says about husbands. If we want to get worked up about something, the bar is much higher <laughs> for husbands. I mean, look at it. He gives one verse to how what submission looks like for a wife. And then look at all the space he gives to how husbands are to submit to their wives. Verse 23, for the wife is the head of the wife, and Christ also is the head of the church. I'm sorry, the husband is the head of the wife, and Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. But as the subject, as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their own husbands and everything. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. How are husbands to submit to their wives? How did Christ submit himself to the church? He gave up his, his very life. He was willing to be tortured and humiliated for the spiritual well-being of his bride, the church. So we husbands are to love our wives in such a way that we are willing to endure even the loss of our physical life for the spiritual well-being of our wives. To love our wives with a sacrificial love a purifying love that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, presenting to himself a church in all her glory. So that's where we get this idea that, that a marriage is a picture of Christ's relationship with his church. It's a caring love, loving our, own, loving our wives as our own bodies. It's an unbreakable love, becoming one flesh. How does he put it in Colossians? He just says, husband, love your wives and do not be embittered against them. So if I were you, I'd mark in your margins there, Ephesians 5, to understand a little bit more about what Paul means by that. 
We are all to submit to one another. That submission looks differently depending on the relationship. Wives submit to their husbands, but husbands also submit their very physical well-being to their wives' spiritual well-being. And I think that if a husband is a godly man, striving after Christ, sacrificially loving her, caring for her, that becomes the kind of leadership that a wife can follow. But he goes on. So that's an example of how we are. That's one example of how we as Christians are to submit to one another. Then he gives another example. Verse 20. Children, be obedient to your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Yeah, we understand that, right? I tell my kids to be cheerfully obedient. Don't argue with me. Be cheerfully obedient. Trust that I have a reason. Makes sense? What does he say next? Fathers, do not exasperate your children, that they may not lose heart. There's a real sense in which I am to submit my temper. I am to submit what I think ought to happen to what is actually to the betterment of my children. And he says in verse 22, Slaves, in all things, obey those who are your masters on earth. Not just with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. For whatever you do, do your work heartily. As for the Lord rather than for men. Is Paul here saying that slavery is good? No, he's not even commenting on the institution of slavery. He's saying if you happen to find yourself in a place in life where you have people in authority over you, realize that in some way you are there in the providence of God. And without commenting on the evil of slavery, he's saying, honor God in how you respond to authority. And then chapter 4, which I've always thought was a wrong place to divide the chapter, but chapter 4, Masters, grant your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Paul is saying, He's not commenting on, on the evil of slavery, which is evil. He's saying, if you, even for those who find themselves in a position where they have those with complete um, under their complete authority, they realize that these people, if they are Christians, are your brothers in Christ. And you too have a master in heaven. You have no better standing before God than they do. So what's the application for us today? I don't know. I don't have any slaves. I don't think any of you do. We all have jobs. That's usually the most frequent application of this. If someone is spending their day telling you what to do. It may not be pleasant, but realize that how you respond to that authority is in some ways an outworking of how you respond to God's providence in your life, especially if those over you are Christians. Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us. Conduct yourselves, verse 5, with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned as it were with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. It's like Paul's writing a farewell letter to them in some ways, isn't it? He's saying, saying Christian, let, let let this be your life. Let the life of Christ 
flow through you to others. I heard it say one time that, that ministry, which we all have, right, how we relate to other people in Christ is ministry. How you point them to Christ is ministry. And ministry, in many ways, is the overflow of your relationship with God. You will not be effective in pursuing healthy relationships or pointing people to Christ if you yourself are not pursuing Him. Have I shared this with you, that, that if your output exceeds your intake, your upkeep will be your downfall? Right? If your output exceeds your intake, your upkeep will be your downfall. How you pursue Christ determines how well you can shepherd others to Christ. Who you are determines what you do. And then he gives a number of, of farewell messages. So coming to church, occasionally doing a random act of kindness, random act of compassion, even submitting to other people, doesn't make you a Christian. Husbands, how you treat your wife doesn't make you a Christian. You know one of the scariest verses in the Bible to me? I've gone blank at the moment of where it is. How I treat my wife in some ways determines how well God hears my prayers. Trevor, where is that? First Peter 3. You ever think about that, husbands? How you treat your wife affects how God hears your prayers. But what that doesn't say is that how I treat my wife determines whether I'm a Christian. Wives, how you respond to your husbands doesn't determine whether you're a Christian. Church, how you respond to your elders doesn't make you a Christian. But if you are a Christian and your life is hidden with Christ, then the life of Christ will work itself out and your relationships then become saturated with love and kindness and compassion. So that's Paul's message to them. The position of a Christian and the practice of a Christian. The two are, in many ways, separate, but they are so close together that they are inseparable. Who you are determines what you do. Father, we are yours, and we are yours by your doing. And we are humbled to think that by your grace, by your mercy, by your wisdom, and by your power, you have united us with Christ, who has lived the life that we could not live, who has died the death that we deserve, whose victory over death becomes ours, and whose position for God purchases the same for us. Remind us, Lord, that all we have in this life, all we have that we can claim for eternity comes because we are united to this Christ. That all the blessings in the heavenly realm that he has earned become ours. His character and his life then becomes progressively ours. 
So when we're confronted with a decision to make, remind us, Lord, to ask, which of these provides greater opportunity to understand more the nature and character and life of Christ? Help us to respond to each other in such a way that we desire what is Christ-like and Christ-honoring in our relationships. For we are yours, Lord. Be honored and glorified, both in the attitude of our hearts as well as in our words and deeds. We pray in Jesus' name.